Good morning, everyone. I trust that you can all say that it is well with your soul, even though we find ourselves in a very challenging season. So this morning we're going to be looking or starting on a new series, and we're going to be looking at ourselves this morning. It seems like the season that we are currently in is pressing us to become more introspective. And so we find people asking themselves the questions that relate to why we do certain things and why certain things are important to us. And this is even happening within the church. And so to that end this morning, we want to we want to reestablish again for ourselves why church is important. And we're going to be looking at certain ways in which the church is described so that we can see what God is saying to us in this season. So as we start out, I want to start by reading a scripture um, from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. Now this particular text actually is addressing discipline. But I don't want us to consider that this morning. I rather just want us to listen to the kind of language that is being used to describe believers. And, um, and just listen to the way believers are being addressed in a particular way. So this is what Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 to 11 says. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what Children are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? So the, the writer there is using a kind of language that helps us to understand who we are in a particular context, and that context is family. And so we're going to be looking at that idea of us as the church being family. Now while you're sitting there, I'd like you to just to look around at those people who are sitting around you. And while you're doing that, I want to ask you a question. And this is the question, how far have you gone in entertaining the idea that we are all related to one another, that we are all family? And that wouldn't matter if you have uh, creamy vanilla skin or if you have rich chocolate colored skin or if you have salted caramel skin like mine or if you maybe have curly hair, curly hair or beautiful oriental eyes, doesn't matter. Now we know that the idea that we are all related is not such a far-fetched idea as there are a number of theories that support it. Now the one that most people seem to accept 
is the idea or the theory of evolution. And this theory, while admitting that we are all related, proposes actually that our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is something like a primordial soup. And then there's the idea that there's actually an intelligent designer who created everything, an intelligent designer who created a man and a woman and the 7.8 billion people on the earth all came from those two people. I recall having a conversation with someone who vehemently rejected that idea because it seemed like a fairy tale. Well, actually, it's not such an impossible idea. Apparently, if you think about it, if you consider it in a particular way, it turns out to actually be scientifically plausible despite the fact that this idea does present us with some problems. Now, if you were to read the creation account that is um, written for us and described for us in the book of Genesis, if we were to read that account in a literal sense, then you would come to the conclusion that the earth is approximately 6,000 years old. And you would get that figure from adding up the genealogies such as the ones mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11. So according to this, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. They fell into sin. They were exiled from the garden. They had some children and their family tree continued to grow. And then about 4,500 years ago, we get to Noah. And as we know, there's a flood that destroys all of humanity, except for eight people who survive the flood, namely Noah, his sons, and their wives. And then God says to them in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, according to, to population demographics, population growth depends on a combination of birth rates and death rates, and is affected by factors such as the carrying capacity of the environment, among other factors. Now, if we apply an average annual population growth rate somewhere between 1 and 2% from the time of Noah, with the world population doubling every 150 years, then over the past 4,500 years since the flood, the world population should be in the region of 7 to 8 billion people, which, interestingly enough, is approximately where we are at now. The detail of this belief presents some problems, but it is plausible. Now, when we look at and we consider our history as the human race, it is clear that sin has brought along with it a very strong will to bring about division within relationships. And so as we read through the Old Testament, we encounter conflicts and there are broken relationship after broken relationship between men and women, between nations, between man and God. And there is this constant work that must be done to restore these broken relationships. And even when we come to the age of the church, we find that there is this language that has these metaphors 
that are used to help us realize that we are part of one another. And so us being unified, being or at least holding the knowledge and the understanding that we are part of one another is very important to Jesus. Now, as we look at scripture, we see that there are a number of metaphors that are actually used to describe us as the church. If uh, Ephesians chapter 2 calls us a building or a structure, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 calls us a holy temple, and later on we are also called a field, Ephesians 5 calls us a bride, Colossians 2 we are called a body, and then there are other metaphors that are used as well. But of all these word pictures and metaphors that are used in Scripture to describe the church, for me, I think there's one that stands out above the rest, and that's family. In fact, family is so much of the essence of the church that it cannot even properly be called a metaphor. You know, metaphors describe what the church is like or what it's similar to. And so we see words like body, flock, field, building used. But, but family is not metaphorical. It is a literal description of this phenomena that we know as church. The church is not like family. It actually is family. And as we know, God is literally our father. Jesus is literally our elder brother, as is mentioned in Romans 8 and Mark chapter 3. And we are literally brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we read scripture, we see that we are called God's children. And we are part of his household of faith. And when we read through the letters in the New Testament, we see that family is the primary way that the early church identified themselves. And this can be seen by the fact that the word disciple, which is so prevalent in the early part of the New Testament, actually disappears after the book of Acts. And it is then replaced by the term brother and sister for the rest of Scripture. Family appears to dominate the self-understanding of the early church. We are a family of believers in one locality who have been drawn together by our common experience of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Christians are never called to be followers of Jesus in isolation. You know, when you become a believer, you become a member of this household of faith. You become a brother. You become a sister. There are no lone rangers within this household of faith. In fact, when I think about it, then I recognize the fact that it wasn't, if it wasn't for the church, in our South African context, with our society being as segregated as it is, then I may never have gotten to know many of you seated here today. In our adoption as sons and daughters, we are all brought into the experience of what God has always been. The Godhead has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and this image of family includes us as the Father's 
children. As we read through the Bible, we constantly see the fatherhood of God and believers' relationships with one another. And so we cannot think of God outside of his fatherness. And we cannot think of believers outside of being brothers and sisters. But unfortunately, often when we say church, we don't think family. And so we have to keep reminding ourselves that we are not simply going through the motions of church. And so I'd imagine that you didn't come here this morning just to all sit facing the same direction, to sing a few songs and then to have someone speak at you. When we do come together, we are establishing a family. There is this unity, this harmony, this connectedness. We have this care for one another with all of the intimacy that comes along with that. And so we see that the church is not an event. The church is family. You know, one of the things that I am hoping comes out of this pandemic is that we as the church will reassess and reevaluate what church actually is. And that we will allow God to prune away the dead branches that don't produce fruit so that we can be more fruitful. Now I'd like to change gears for the next few minutes and, and, I, and I want to remind us of five things that make us family and I think five things that we should strive to uphold as family. And this is the first thing. As family, we are joined together by something that is greater than our personal preferences or our life circumstances. As we know, we do not get to choose our family. And similarly so, we don't get to choose our church family either. We are made God's children through the Holy Spirit the moment we become saved. Families are bound by blood, just as Christians are bound by the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for us. We all know the saying that blood is thicker than water, which, which means that family relationships and loyalties are stronger and more important than friendships. And, and it implies that there's something very particular about family relationships that take precedence over friendships. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul writes to the church there saying, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We are part of one another, whether we like it or not. And so as being part of this family of believers, we actually have special claims on each other that comes along with it bearing a responsibility towards one another. You know, we are, we are, it's like we are tied to each other. There is this closeness. And so we share our hopes and we share our dreams and we share truth in a very special way. And all of this is because we are not thinking about our individual selves, but we are thinking of something that is bigger than us. 
And so we put those interests of our own one side and we put the bigger picture over that. Secondly, because we're family, we all kind of look alike. <laughs> over the past weekend, I had some family around and we were looking at some old photographs. And my mother, who was showing me this photograph of my grandfather, who I never met, um, said to me that there were some features that he had that I have. You know, the, there are these genetic similarities that mean we will look alike. Now, in our church family, despite the fact that we have diversity in worship styles, diversity in theological understandings, in leadership models, diversity in our giftings, etc. We all share the same foundational truth. We all believe the same gospel. And so this gospel message, coupled with the influence of the Holy Spirit, coupled with how God uses community to shape us, tends to mold us to look more like the same character who is Jesus. And so anyone who looks at a follower of Jesus should be able to tell that they are followers, that they are Christian, simply by some identifying features that we all share. Thirdly, being part of the family of God gives us the right to enjoy all the blessings of our Father. <clears throat> now we all know that we enter into the family of God through Jesus. And in our natural state, we are all like the prodigal son, who we read about in Luke chapter 15, who rebels shamefully against his father, who moves away from him and he ends up wasting everything that his father had given him. Now, we are also rebellious. We are ungrateful and constantly disobedient to our Creator, to our Father. However, our God is like that Father, who when the Son returned, put a ring on His finger, gave Him the best clothes, and made a banquet to celebrate His return. This picture doesn't reflect anything other than the total acceptance by the Father and that the full rights of the Son are given back to this rebellious Son. And then beyond that, we are heirs. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And so as children of God, our inheritance is imperishable, it is undefiled and unfading and being kept in heaven for us. And then on top of that, he gives us gifts, and he equips us for ministry. He gives us his Holy Spirit and he empowers us to carry this message that communicates that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And he empowers us and he gives us authority to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Fourthly, as family, we are concerned about growth. Now, when you do marriage counseling with a young couple who are engaged, one of the questions that needs to be dealt with is whether or not this couple will have children because they're starting a family. I can remember back when um, Cindy and I just got married. It seemed as though every second person we spoke to asked about when, when we would have children. And our parents were leading the charge there. Similarly so, we must also be concerned about growing this household of faith. Jesus gave us the great commission in Matthew chapter 28 to go and to invite people to join this family. And this is something that ties in with recognizing that we are part of something that is greater than our personal preferences as well as our life circumstances. And finally, as family, we must be united as one. Just before Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he prayed this prayer that is recorded in John chapter 17. I'll read from verses 20 to 23. This is what Jesus said. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be, be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, if I'm honest, then I think that this is a prayer that Jesus prayed that hasn't been fully and completely answered or realized yet. And when we read this and we think about it, we see that Jesus is making an incredible request here. He asks the Father that we as, as family, as this household of faith, become unified as as one as the Father and as the Son are one. And this is incredible, especially in the light that Jesus says, that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then Jesus says, as we read there, I and my Father are one. And Jesus asks that we would be one, not the appearance of being one. Not just taking up membership, not just showing up at the building or showing up at the gathering, but one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. When I read this, 
I must be honest with you and say that I don't even know if this is possible. And furthermore, if I think about our South African context being as segregated as it is, I'm even more intimidated. So let me ask you this. Did you come here to this fellowship of believers thinking to yourself, my goal here is to get as close to these people as the Father is to the Son? Now, I would imagine that you would want your space. You would want your social distance just like me. But this is what Jesus wants. This is what Jesus asks for. He asks for a unity that I think by any stretch of the imagination is incredible. And it's very clearly something that would only be possible by his power, with his help. And then as we read there, Jesus gives us the reason for us being united. He says if we are united, then the world would have proof the world would have evidence that Jesus was sent by the Father and that he loves us. And so if we want to grow this church, if we want to grow this body, this household of believers, if we want to be part of what Jesus is doing, if we want to convince the world that Jesus is really the Son of God, then we must be united. We must be one. Now, as I close, I think it is impossible to answer the question, what is a Christian, without ending up in a conversation about the church? We cannot be followers of Jesus outside of this, this body, this family. You know, there are other paths that you can walk alone, but you cannot follow Jesus alone. Each of us must come to the cross individually. But when we do come to the cross, we meet together and we grow together just like a family grows together. Amen.